Amen. Good morning. Great singing this morning. I'm going to get rid of all this stuff here. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, worship team. Great job this morning. Appreciate all that. Even got Taylor up here this morning. Uh, so excellent. Nice to have her uh, part of the worship team this morning. Uh, it's great to see you all. Uh, radical mentoring. You guys have watched now three videos. And uh, so men, I would encourage you uh, to prayerfully, seriously consider uh, being part of that and again, November 11th would be a great time to come. You're not committing if you come to that meal, uh, but that'd be a great time to get some information, so we hope you would take advantage of that. Uh, when I came in this morning to the auditorium, uh, talked to several people, but two people in particular, uh, there were two questions that were asked to me or comments that were made. One was, uh, are you speaking this morning? Yes, because you see the mic. And where are the Bartlett's? So uh, you may not know, but uh, Jeff and Deanna have an opportunity. Actually, they'll be flying out here shortly out of Atlanta. They'll be going to Greece, uh, an opportunity that came for them to go on a trip to travel uh, one of Paul's missionary journeys. So a great time for them to get away and to have that opportunity. So they will be gone from us uh, uh, today. And next Sunday, Brandon will be preaching. And uh, so hopefully you'll come back and uh, have a great service next uh, week as well. The other comment that was made was, oh, good. We'll get out early, so <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. It is a privilege uh, to speak to you this morning, and uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to you on the screen there. James 1 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. In the year 2000, uh, Tom Hanks starred in a movie uh, called Castaway. You may have seen that. That is now an old movie. Uh, so uh, I saw that years ago and actually haven't seen it. So uh, if, if I remember correctly, basically uh, Tom Hanks again is starring this. So he's, he has a job. He works for FedEx. Uh, he has the love of his life that they're not married, but the plans are moving in that direction. And basically to make this short, if you haven't seen it, if you have, it's been so long anyways, we don't really remember. But he works for FedEx. He's flying. The plane crashes with all the packages. Um, everyone dies, and he's the lone survivor, and he washes ashore on an island where he is there for years, all right? He has one friend named Wilson, of course. That is actually a volleyball, all right? So we've probably seen that. You can actually buy these. Uh, people making money still today. So he had a friend, Wilson, and he had some other junk that had kind of washed along shore and so forth. And, uh, but he had one package that he doesn't open, and he's determined as a faithful FedEx uh, delivery man that he's going to deliver this package when he gets off the island. So he finally gets off the island, and he makes it uh, to back to home years later. He finds out that the, the love of his life has moved on, and it's a great, horrible ending to a, a great movie. That's really not the point. The point is FedEx made a commercial after this uh, movie, which is actually a great commercial. So I went up and looked and watched the commercial again just this last week. It basically has the, the uh, Tom Hanks uh, personality, but it's not Tom Hanks, but he's got long straggly hair, long beard, looks like he's been on an island for alone for years. And he goes up to this door and finally delivers this FedEx package. Years later, this lady comes to the door, quite puzzled what is going on, and uh, she says, thank you, and FedEx always delivers, or whatever they said, all right? So he starts walking away, and he turns around and pauses and says, can I see what's in the package? And this is a commercial that aired after. Can I see what's in the package? And the lady's like, uh, sure. So she cuts open the box, pulls out, um, nothing really that important, just a satellite phone, GPS locator, a couple other things, and whatever was in there was like, what? Are you kidding me? 
Okay, so, so what he needed there in this package were the, the, the most useful tools that he could have used to get off the island, to have a better life for the short period of time he would have been there. He would have gotten on off the island much quicker, probably been able to still have the love of his life, and he had it right there inside the box. What is the point of that? James is this package that has, gives us all these useful tools of how we should live our Christian life. In fact, I'll just read you several lines because James is one of those epistles that sometimes kind of takes a back seat to some others. But here's some, just some lines. We're not going to talk about these verses, but here's some verses that you'd find in the book of James that will probably be familiar to you. If any lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Love your neighbor as yourself. Faith without works is dead. The tongue is a little member, but boasts great things. God resists the proud, but give grace to the humble. So there's a whole bunch of familiar, practical verses that are found in the book of James. We're not going to talk about any of those this morning. Before, again, we get to James 1, let me give you a little historical background. Before I do that, you know, Jeff is all about expository preaching. I love expository preaching, but I only get like two to three times a year to preach. And so I'm thankful for those opportunities. So what I was thinking is over the next 25 to 30 years, I will preach through the book of James. And so I'm kidding, I, th I think. So we'll see. So let me give you a little historical background before uh, we pick up into James 1. So the author of James, uh, pretty much there's not really a lot of disagreement on this, is the half-brother of Jesus. So you have James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Elpheus, and then James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus. James, that we're referring to here, the half-brother of Jesus, was not always pro-Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, in John 7, 5, it says not even his brothers believed that he was the Messiah. So if you can imagine being the brother of Jesus growing up, and you try to have an argument with him, but he's perfect, I don't know how that works, but whatever it was, James was not all bought into Jesus, my brother being the Messiah. But something changed over time, and, and we find out in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we won't look at that, but he saw the resurrected Christ, and he, either it was at this time or sometime before that James was all in. And we know that, that something changed so, somewhere where he moved from being a critic and an unsympathetic opponent of Jesus and became a servant even until his death where he was martyred around 62 A.D. He was stoned, which didn't finish him off, so they ended up clubbing him to death, where he gave his life to Christ. So we know James was a complete follower and servant of his brother, Jesus. Uh, it's interesting also in the book of James, many of the phrases and the wording of James feel similar to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're very familiar with that as well, right? I'll give you an example here in just a second. Now, James is written... Uh, we'll look at the verses here in just a second, is to a much broader audience. Unlike First um, and Second Corinthians, where it's written to the church of Corinth, this is written to a broad audience, all right? And we'll, we'll look at that here in just a second as well. And again, throughout, throughout centuries, we go through the last century, James was, was questioned as its great value. Is it, does it measure up to these same books as far as Romans, Galatians, Ephesians? In fact, some have suggested that James is at odds in his teaching in the book of James, is at odds uh, with Paul. Why do we say that? Since Paul preaches grace, where he has, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of your works, lest any man should boast. But then James comes along in the book of James and talks so much about our actions and our works. James 2.20 says, faith without works is dead. Well, what's the contrast here? Well, Paul shows us that Christ met the demands of the law and brings us to salvation by grace alone, 
through faith alone and Christ alone, right? James shows that the believer's obedience to God's moral standard is an indication of living faith. So Paul says, and this will be on your screen, Paul says, faith is only by grace, and James says, genuine faith will look like this. And faith and works are integrally related. They cannot be separated. In fact, let me give you this example. Um, counterfeit. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, counterfeit uh, money or a counterfeit shoe, or there's all sorts of different things that are counterfeit. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Actually, uh, it was probably about a year and a half ago, my nephew was going to sell his uh, phone, an iPhone, and uh, so he, he, I don't know what sort of venue he used to sell it, but he connected with this guy, he wanted to buy it for the price, and so he goes and meets this guy, um, I think it ended up being kind of darker than probably what you'd want, but he ends up making this exchange, so he gets the phone from this, he's about 17, 18 at this time, he swaps, he gets the phone, and uh, the other guy hands uh, my nephew the money, and all of a sudden the guy starts running away. Well, that's not a good sign, all right? What he ended up finding, getting into light or better looking, and he found out that the money had been handed was counterfeit. So counterfeit, I, and that was kind of a bummer for him. So I'm, I sold my Ford Explorer a couple months ago, and so I have this in the back of my mind. So I actually use Facebook Marketplace, which is a great place to sell about anything. And so uh, I, I, I list it, and that same day some guy wants to buy, and it's really broken English that we're using through Messenger. And uh, so I'm like, okay, this could be interesting. He might not speak English very well. And so we finally make the deal. He's driving from Columbia. We're going to meet at Quick Trip off of 85, right, that exit right there. And uh, we're going to exchange. I'm going to give him a vehicle that I don't want anymore, and he's going to give me money, I hope. I don't know who I'm meeting. And so because of varying circumstances, I had my three daughters with me, which is probably not the best idea, <laughs> but it, it, it was fine, okay? We're all good. Well, it got later and later, and it wasn't until like 10, 30, or 11 before we make this exchange. It's dark. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? So I've got this thing that happened with my nephew in, my, in the back of my mind thinking, okay, I've got to make sure that this is like legit, all right? So they come. They don't speak a lick of English. I'm like, oh, my. It was quite exciting, actually. And so they didn't ask to test drive this thing, thankfully. And, uh, and so it, it was all good. I haven't heard from them since. I think it's still running. All that to say, it's dark, and I'm in Quick Trip, and they're giving me a whopping $1,000, all $100 bills, and I'm going to give them keys to this car. I'm like, okay, so I'm in Quick Trip at 11 o'clock at night. There's, it's busy there, by the way, roughly. There's, and I'm holding $100 bills up to the light like this. Why? <laughs> I want to make sure that I'm not getting counterfeit money, right? So, so getting something that counterfeit might have some consequences. I thankfully didn't have a consequence like my nephew. What's the point? A counterfeit bill is one thing, but a counterfeit Christian is something completely different. And there are great eternal consequences. James gives us what a true Christian should look like. So let's compare our faith, and we're just going to look at a couple verses here this morning. Compare our faith to the book of James to see how we stack up. So look at me with James 1, and let's read verses 1 through 4. Starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God, even right here it shows humility and obedience. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What's the dispersion? What does that mean? Ones that were living outside of Palestine, ones that were living outside of the promised land. And so over several hundreds of years, Jews had been scattered abroad. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, there were ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom. There were two tribes that made up the southern kingdom. The ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom were conquered by the Assyrians. So you had a whole bunch of Jews that were in Assyria. 580 B.C., the Babylonians conquered the two southern tribes, the southern kingdoms. And so 
you have a whole bunch of Jews that are in Babylon. Pompey, in 63 BC, took over Jerusalem, and many were brought back to Rome as slaves. So you got Jews that are all over the place, outside again of this dispersion, outside of Palestine. You had Jews ended up in Antioch, Egypt, Syria. All right? So these Jews are spread out all over uh, the, the, this area. Right? That's verse 1. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So we, we see this is written to Christians, my brothers. He's referring to believers. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Over the next few minutes, I just want to look at those three verses, verses 2, 3, and 4. It says in verse 2, count it all joy when you have trials and difficulties. This kind of has a similar uh, feel. I I refer to the Sermon on the Mount. So count it all joy. So here, uh, James is referring and talking to believers, Christian Jews, that are scattered throughout these, and they're going through different types of persecution, trials. Some of them are slaves, being mistreated. So here it says, count it all joy when you have trials of difficulties. Similar to the Sermon on the Mount, starts how? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount when we uh, studied those verses. As I was reading this, I was trying to, kind of trying to think through, what would these Jewish Christians have thought getting this letter from James like man this is this great apostle and follower of Jesus Christ James are getting this letter and they read count it all joy when you have difficulties it made me think of this show when I was uh, a kid called Different Strokes anybody see that show all right so it's these two boys from Harlem that get adopted into this family and basically there's a line that is even stuck I even sometimes use this line I, I, I forgot where it came from but it comes from the show so this, this older brother, played by Gary Coleman, who's uh, deceased now, would make these comments to his younger brother for various reasons, different comments that were made, and he would say, what you talking about, Willis? I think, I wonder if some of the responses sometimes, even in the Sermon about blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness, and then these Jews are sitting here reading, count it all joy when we fall into these testings and trials and we have difficulties. Like, what are you talking about? We see throughout Scripture that God has a plan. You know what we have that these Jewish Christians didn't have is we have the, the full New Testament to, to go and study and read and look at. And we see that God has a plan for us. From the very start, we're warned that the Christian life is going to have trials and challenges, that we're going to suffer, right? Plan on it. I think many today think, even preach and teach, that if I obey here on earth, if I do these things, if, if I do what God asks of me, then my life is going to be easy and blessed. And that's not true. This is not what God promises. So let's go to that verse 2 where it says, count it all joy, or let's use the word consider it all joy. Why, why use this word consider as it's uh, used in several translations? Why do we need to consider this? Consider all joy when you fall into Why? Because it's not a natural human response. This is not normal to have something bad and yet be able to have joy amidst a difficulty. Many commentators giving varying ideas of what this all joy means. I believe it carries the idea of having complete and total joy even when sorrow and disappointment is present. That we've gone through difficulties and struggle. We don't find out, hey, I hate to break the news to you, but you know, your wife has cancer. Yes, I've been hit. No, that's not our response, okay? 
We will have sorrow and disappointment, but we can have all joy. Why? It doesn't say only joy. It doesn't say somewhat joy. It says all joy. What do we mean? Because we can look at and understand the big picture that God has much more in store and in plan because we can trust an all-faithful, all-knowing, all-wise God. We can have all joy because all ends well when God is in control. It's not a joy that's based on feeling. It's a choice. A choice to have true joy, not some fabricated happiness when someone comes around. A true internal joy. Warren Wearsby states on this same verse, if we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. Let's move on through that verse. Count it all joy, my brothers. Again, he's talking to Christians. When you meet trials of various kinds. What do we mean by the word trials? Uh, The KJV actually uh, uses the terminology diverse temptations. So the Greek here, or the Greek word here, and I'm not a Greek scholar, so hopefully I pronounce this correctly, parasmos, the Greek word here is parasmos, this this testing, this trials. It's not really temptations in in our English sense of the word as we understand temptations. It really has a meaning to uh, a testing that produces something stronger. God tested Abraham when he was asked to offer Isaac. The trials, these, these trials are, are made to uh, in, put in our life to make us stronger. Trials are not sent to make us weaker, but to make us stronger. Trials are not sent to make us fall, but to increase our faith. We know that trials and difficulties are part of the fall. Sin entered, right? Sin entered this world, and so did struggle, so did difficulty, hardship, and these hardships fall on believers and non-believers, right? In fact, the sun is shining out today, which we're thankful for. Do you know who gets to enjoy the sun? Everybody. Believers and non-believers alike get to enjoy God's creation and God's blessing. But we also experience hardship. In fact, let me give you several verses. You don't have to look, uh, turn to any of these. Job 14.1, Job says, and we know what he's gone through, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. Psalm 22, 11, David says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Isaiah, in chapter 8, declares, Look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Jesus even told his disciples in John 6, 33, In this world you will have tribulation. Count on it. These men understood that life is going to have difficulty and challenges. They, like what? What do we talk about? We could all give a list because we've all had difficulties and trials. Like what? Loss of a loved one? Maybe a child, a spouse, some of you have gone through that difficulty. Sickness, cancer, prolonged illness, constant pain. There are some of you in here, I know right now, that live with constant pain. That is a trial, a testing. Financial difficulty, loss, loss of a job, maybe a car, something as simple as a car that doesn't work. Loss of material possessions, house burns down, maybe you have something stolen. Difficult relationship, a struggle in a marriage conflict at work. Maybe it's as simple as just a disappointment. You had something you had planned on going this way and it didn't happen as you planned. You know, that can be a testing, a trial that God brings into your life, just a disappointment. Could be even on the spiritual where you're mocked or ridiculed for your faith, for taking a stand for Christ, a spiritual persecution. But there is a huge difference for what these trials produce in a Christian than an unbeliever. What does it produce in a non-believer? Let me give you some things that came to mind. A non-believer 
when these trials and testings will come, what, what will it produce? Anger, resentment, hatred for God, if they believe in God, further brokenness, destruction, hopelessness. In fact, sometimes even when they conquer a trial or this difficulty that they have in life and, and they feel like they beat it, maybe it's determination in themselves that I can do this on my own pride or dependency. This is what it produces in a non-believer. So in the next few minutes, I want to answer two questions, and hopefully this will be useful and practical to us this morning. So let's ask it this way, question number one. What is the purpose? Why? Why do these trials come into our life? What is the purpose for the trials that we face in our Christian life? Throughout Scripture, we see several reasons for this, and I'm just going to give five. But before you get nervous, my points are quick, and we'll get through these. But I want to give five reasons or five purposes why we might have trials in our life. There may be something that someone is going through today and you're asking God, why? Why do I have to endure this? Maybe it's one of these five here, or maybe it's all five. Number one, number one, to strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith. Mark chapter four, I think that'll be on the screen there. Mark chapter four, verses 35 to 40. Mark chapter four, if you want to turn there, that's great. We'll follow along. I'm going to read these few verses here. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side and leave the crowd. They took him with them in the boat. So the disciples are leaving the crowd. They're just, uh, Christ is teaching. They get in a boat, the disciples, and Jesus is in the boat as well. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, Catch this. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I don't have to answer out loud. What is present in that comment? What is present? Fear. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Here, here we have the testing of disciples' faith in Christ. This storm arises, a little storm, and the disciples freak out. They have Jesus right there in the boat with them. Kind of like usually most of our trials, Jesus is right there with us. And here they are freaking out. And Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You know why? Because God uses trials and storms in our life to strengthen our faith. What's interesting, this is Mark 4. We won't turn there, but if you look in Mark 6, we have the story of Peter walking on the water. And Jesus walks on the water. It gives a more detailed uh, description of the same story in Matthew 14 where it describes Peter walking on the water. Great contrast to Mark 4 where a storm comes and all the disciples are fearful. And Christ says, have you, no, have you still no faith? What happens from Mark 4, testing, to Mark 6? I don't know everything that transpires there, but what has taken place? Peter's strength, or faith, has been strengthened through different trials, and this being one of them. Now, we know he took his eyes off Jesus, and he started sinking, but you know what? He had the faith to get out of the boat. Your level of fear... During a, a trial, a testing, your level of fear reveals your level of faith. 
Your level of fear reveals your level of faith. More fear, less faith. Less fear, more faith. Number one, that's the purpose. One is to strengthen our faith. Number two, to wean us from our dependency or our dependence on worldly things. Lamentations 3.24 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Here we have this verse, the Lord is my portion. We used to sing a, a song when I was growing up. In fact, I, I thought about singing uh, the song uh, for you this morning. Um, and I was going to use it as my audition uh, for Chris to be part of the worship team, but he's not here, so too bad. The song goes, Christ is all I need. Christ is all I need. All, all I need. I don't think he sung that chorus. But many times, I sung that chorus hundreds of times growing up. And many of those times, I was surrounded by hundreds of people singing that song, Christ is all I need. And really, is that true? I think if we're honest with ourselves, the way we live our life, I think our song would probably go something more like this. All I need is big house, nice car, good health, healthy family, kids that are doing well, take the newest iPhone, uh, cushy bank account, no conflict, and I'll take Jesus too. Trials drive us to what is most important, and usually that is not our earthly possessions. When we lose something of real value, we often realize what is most important, which drives us to Colossians 3.1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Difficulties in life cause us to reevaluate our priorities. I was thinking of uh, the Terrorism Act of 9-11, right? We reflect back on that, and you think, man, when I picture, I have never seen so many people willing to pray. People have never prayed their entire life. Why? Because when catastrophe hits, those things that we thought were important really weren't that important. And oftentimes our life gets, our priorities get straight and things come into focus. So another purpose for trials is to get our focus right and off of worldly things and onto those things that are most important. Trials wean us from a dependency on worldly things and increase our dependency on God. Then as we're going through here, I got three more. Think of the trials that you've gone through, that you're in the middle of right now, and understand purpose that God has for you in dealing with these things. Number three. Number three, to reveal what we really love. To reveal what we really love. Abraham, when asked to offer his son Isaac to the Lord as a sacrifice, illustrated his greater love for God than his own son. Luke 14, 26, a verse that we ha- sometimes have a hard time wrapping our mind around, says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be, the, my, be my disciple. Say, what? No, Christ, we know, is not telling us to hate our family members. There are too many other passages in Scripture that are contrary to that. What is he saying then? What is this trying to communicate to us? Our love for Christ should be so much greater than our love for even our family members, right? There are some in here maybe that have, have had to sacrifice relationships with family because of their relationship with Christ. That's what it should be. You know, when trials come into our life, you have to evaluate what is most important and what do I truly love. And sometimes those trials 
bring to surface things that maybe you love that shouldn't be quite a love in your life, and we can reevaluate and adjust those things. And God uses those trials in life. Let me ask you this question before we move on to the next point. What could you not live without? Just think in your mind. What could you not live without? If you came up with a list with five things, we have to have food and water, okay? What could you not live without? It would take time to think through and make a list, but would the Bible ever come into your, would the importance of God's word be in your top five? Did it come to your mind even when I asked that question? Would the value of that should be something of utmost greater importance than all these other things that we could think of? Number three, trials can reveal what we really love. Number four. Number four, what's the purpose of trials? To call us to an eternal hope. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul realized here that his life is, it's not about my happiness and comfort. You know, we sing the song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Is, is that true? I mean, do we, or are we so attached to the things of this world and our possessions that we really don't want to leave? This certainly is not Paul's feelings in Philippians 1, 23 and 24, where he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Is that your hope? Is that your thought? And he goes on, but to remain in this flesh is more necessary in your account. He, he saw and understood his need to be here on earth, but his desire was to be with Christ. And I think those that go through difficult trials long more for heaven. Those that live with constant pain say, boy, Christ could come back today, that would be perfect. In the end, James 1, 12, in the, the chapter that we're looking at today, but the last verse says, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know what trials do? They cause us to long for heaven. And number five, What's another purpose for trials? This is the fifth and last point in this question. is to develop an unswerving constancy. What do we mean by that? If you look at verse 3 in James 1 there, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This Greek word here is hupomone. The KJV, actually, and this is how I memorized it, had, uses the word patience. But patience has this idea of like the, build, the ability to bear things. So sometimes when we think of patience, you think of you know, this annoying person you have to work with, and God has put you through trials and testing so to increase your patience so you can deal with this annoying person at work. Now, that may be true, that may be part of it, but this word steadfastness or hupomone has much more to do with it than that. It's the ability to turn things into greatness and something so amazing that it brings glory and it can only bring glory to God. What do we mean? Martyrs who have been burned at the stake, what is this so amazing in so many of the instances were amazing as the people would watch these people being burned at the stake for their faith and they would oftentimes be singing. How is that possible? Barclay writes in his book, one martyr was asked why he was smiling while being burned to death. So as this martyr is, is at the stake being burned, his tormentor sees him smiling and asks, why are you smiling? And he has enough 
to be able to answer and say this, I saw the glory of God and was glad. I read a part of John Huss's life this past week and in his death, and he was burned at the stake in 1415, he refused to recant his beliefs, which went contrary to the Catholic Church. So he said, salvation is by grace alone, right? Not by giving to the church, not by church attendance and those things. So he was labeled a heretic and burned at the stake. And it's documented that John Huss, as he's tied to the stake, the brush is around him and the flames are beginning to engulf him. He's singing, Christ, thou Son of God, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And he continues singing until the flames engulf him and he dies. That is what trials produce, hoopamong, a steadfastness that makes the world stand in awe. Sometimes we look at our trials and say, God, why? Here's five reasons. There may be other reasons that we could list. But God is at work and growing you into what he wants you to be. What is that? My question number two here, and we'll wrap this up here in a few minutes. Number two, what is the result of the trials. So question number one, what's the purpose? Number two, what is the result of the trials that we face in our Christian life? Verse four says, and let steadfastness, this hoopamone, let steadfastness have its full effect. Why? That you may be, and here's the three points, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So number one, let's look at the word perfect. Perfect, useful, your usefulness for the desired task. Now, when we see, uh, think of the word perfect, we think of sinless perfection, right? Perfect. This really is not the meaning of this. The Greek word here, the, the word is actually teleos, which means perfection towards a certain purpose or given end. So what do we mean? We be, why we be perfect? I'm not going to be perfect. I'm still going to struggle in this life. I'm still going to make wrong choices. I'm still going to sin. Okay, so how can I have this steadfastness that you may be perfect? What does this mean? Let me give you this example. A sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, okay, a sacrificial lamb was teleos. What does that mean? It could be used for an offering for God in the Old Testament. So let's say uh, we're going to make a sacrifice. We live in an Old Testament times. And uh, the dad says, uh, hey, Bobby son, I need you to go out and find a lamb for the sacrifice tonight. All right, Bobby son goes out, looking at uh, the herd of the sheep. And he goes and he spots what he thinks is the perfect lamb. So he grabs him, brings him back to, to dad. He said, dad says, that will do, that will perform our desired task of the sacrifice. That will be perfect for the job. That's the idea. So what do these trials produce in our life? Usefulness for God's intended purpose. Well, a lot of times we want to fulfill our own desired purpose and God has another plan. What does God want to use you for to further his kingdom? He wants you to be able to be useful for the desired task that he has prepared for you and trials work to make you perfect for the job, useful for the desired task. Number two, complete. So we say that you may be perfect, number one. Number two is complete. Has the idea of removing blemishes. Just as a sacrificial lamb that we just talked about, just as a sacrificial lamb was to be without spot or blemish, is to be complete in every part. So bit by bit, these trials and testings work out 
the blemishes and imperfection in one's life. We know that we all have struggles and difficulties or sin or character flaws in who we are. Job 23.10 says, but he knows the way that I take. Here Job is speaking and we understand the difficulty and the trials that he faced. And he says, when he has tried me, same word, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Just as gold is melted down to be purified, trials work to remove the blemishes in our own life. I did a little research just last week because I don't know how to refine gold. I don't really have any gold. I guess my ring maybe. But there are six to seven different ways that I've found of how you can refine gold. And so it's interesting, as I was reading through them, they, they all have different variations to them, but what is included in every one of those ways to refine gold is intense heat is used to remove imperfections or blemishes. And so it is with our Christian walk. God uses heat, pressure, testing to remove the waste from our wicked hearts. Why? So we can be perfect, so we can be useful for God's glory. And then number three, lacking nothing. We could say deficient in nothing. And this is similar, so, we, so James here is really just adding to complete and kind of, some, just to make sure you understand, you're complete, lacking in nothing. So similar, but slightly different. Let me give you, try to give you an analogy that maybe that will, will help us. So hopefully this works. I don't know if you've seen a 3D uh, printer at work, but you can take a 3D printer um, and take a mold of something or an original of something and try to recreate, uh, duplicate a, a mold or a replica of the original. All right? So if you've not seen that. So 3D, uh, 360, 3D image. So let's just, for sake of uh, illustration this morning, we have a toy soldier. So imagine I have in my hand a toy soldier. Got it? We want to create a duplicate of this. So we run it through our 3D printer, and it makes it, we run out of material or whatever, and it's this plastic mold, and we realize that our toy soldier is missing an arm. Is that a problem? Yes, it's lacking something. Okay, what's the point? Trials want us and lead us to be lacking in nothing. Why? Because we want to be a replica or an example or useful and be just like Christ. Why? Because we are Christians. We are supposed to be what? Christ-like. So here we are lacking in nothing, and we want to be a comparison. We're not going to be like Christ, but the process of sanctification is making us to be more like Christ to the point we're lacking in nothing because we're a comparison to the original. Trials work out those blemishes and difficulties and sin areas in our life to produce us to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why? So you will be useful, perfect, useful, to further his kingdom and bring glory to his name. In conclusion, I don't know what all trials you're facing today or will be facing tomorrow. If you're not in the middle of a trial right now, it could be today, tomorrow, next week, next month. But rest assured, God has a plan. He is sovereign and he'll use in your life to make you more like him. If we were to continue on here, 
maybe next time I speak in six months. James 1.5 goes on to tell us that if we lack wisdom, let us what? Ask of God. Why is this put here? Because when we don't understand what God is doing, we need to understand that God is all wise and he can show us his plan and reveal to us purposes of why he's doing certain things in our life. The trials that you have faced, are facing, and will face are part of the plan of an all-knowing God. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, when, my, when, my, when I was younger, my mom, I think it's called cross-stitching, but she had this little hoop of stuff, needlework. I don't do that, but maybe some of you do. Uh, I think embroidering is kind of a similar thing, but I think the idea of cross-stitch, where you're stitching this pattern, and uh, so I, you know, that was great, and uh, we had some of those hanging around our house and so forth. But there's a story told to get across this point of a little boy that's sitting at his uh, mother's feet and he's playing with his cars and trucks and the mom is sitting up at this chair kind of above where the boy's at and she's been working on this thing for days and uh, all he's seeing is what? Looking up thinking, my mom is doing something but she's really bad at it. Why? Because it's just a mangled mess of all of these different colors and threads and strings are all hanging underneath and he's thinking, mom doesn't have a clue what she's doing, right? Well, days go by and he eventually says, hey, mom, uh, what are you doing up there? Because it just looks like a mess from down where I'm sitting. And she says, I know, I know, I understand. Just give me a, little bit, a couple more days and then I'll, I'll pull you up on my knee and I'm going to show you my final picture. You know where I'm going with this, right? So a couple days pass, he kind of forgets about it. He knows it's kind of the last day, but he knows that the, the, the strings have kind of all been cut off and the underneath part still looks kind of messy, but it looks a little bit better. And he kind of sees, okay, I can kind of see a picture coming. It looks better than what it did before, but still not all that great. And the mom finishes and pulls the boy up on her knee and he sees this finished product like, wow, now I see, now I get it. What's the point of that silly illustration? We don't always see. We don't always see what God is doing. But he has a plan. And I don't know what you're going through in your life or we'll go through tomorrow. And sometimes we look up and say, Father, it's a mess. You don't know what you're doing. And he does. And he has a plan. And it may be in this life and it may not. But we sit on the Father's lap and we see God has a plan for you. Chip Ingram writes in his book, The Real God, about a teacher that he had and made this statement and it kind of stuck with him. It says, The wisdom of God will bring about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people for the longest possible time. Trust God even in your trials. And when you can understand that God is in control and an all-wise, all-loving God, you can have all joy. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the testing and trials that you send our way, we don't ask for them or necessarily want them. But God, we know that you are working in us and we can see that all things work together for good and we can trust in you that amidst the sorrow, disappointment, heartache, 
God, we can trust that you are in control. And because we know that you have our best interests at heart and mind and you want the best for us, we can have joy. And that doesn't make sense. Lord, use us. Create us to be perfect so we can be useful for the task that you have for us moving forward. We thank you for the opportunity to be in God's house this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for your attention. Have a wonderful day. You're dismissed.